The History of Literature podcast is a member of the Podglomerate Network and Lit Hub Radio. Hello. It's the end of the year. A new one approaches, and we will have a different kind of episode for you today. It's an episode on the verge of past and future, of here and hereafter. We'll talk about endings and beginnings, art and artists, collaboration and communion, literature and life. That's coming up today on the History of Literature. Okay, here we go. Welcome to the podcast. This is definitely an episode in the flicker, which is where we live, as Conrad put it. John Berger, we'll be talking about him a lot today. The painter and novelist and essayist, John Berger called our attention to those moments in between, like the frames of film, and even more, the moments in between those two frames, those two perceiving moments. Suddenly and disconcertingly, he says, we see between two frames. We come upon a part of the visible which wasn't destined for us. Perhaps it was destined for nightbirds, reindeer, ferrets. Eels, whales. Our customary visible order is not the only one. It coexists with other orders. Stories of fairies, sprites, ogres were a human attempt to come to terms with this coexistence. Hunters are continually aware of it and so can read signs we do not see. Children feel it intuitively because they have the habit of hiding behind things. There they discover the interstices between different sets of the visible, end quote. That's from his book, The Shape of a Pocket. What lives in this flicker besides us here today on this podcast? You and me, dear listener. I'm Jack Wilson, by the way. Did I mention that? What's in these interstices? What's that space for? Who resides there? What does that space make possible? Here's another set of questions for us. What is literature for? What do we use it for? What is this podcast for? That's a question I've been asking now for seven years. I know what it's not. The name is confusing. The History of Literature. Sounds simple enough, right? We can draw some lines around that. History is not a confusing word, and neither is literature. Let's start with Gilgamesh, let's say, and march our way through the books Year by year, author by author, one by one, and yet we gave that up somewhere in, in week two, I think, maybe even sooner than that. The history of literature, whatever it is, does not really contemplate a narrator who lies in a ditch with a towel over his head, and that was there from the beginning. I couldn't keep it out. So what is this podcast? What is this podcast for? I didn't know. At first, I just plunged in, reading books, summoning up reactions, delivering thoughts. And then I still didn't really know what the podcast was, but I began to know what it was for. I didn't dream this up by myself. Listeners told me what it was for. Berger talks about this moment for a painter when he or she puts down a, a face on the canvas and the face looks back. I didn't invent the purpose of the podcast. Listeners invented it for me. The purpose was to make connections across time 
and space. That should have been obvious, I suppose, because that's what literature is for, too. I get a lot of emails that are simply people telling me where they listen to the show. I love all the feedback I get. I love hearing about your favorite books and authors. I love hearing you make the case for an author I should talk about. I even love, sort of, the people who don't get the podcast. I've learned to live with that. Even now, knowing that today's show is is different and yet it's necessary, I truly don't have a choice in bringing you this episode. I have to do this episode and I have to do it this way. And yet I know I'll gather some some brickbats, some bad reviews for it from people who say, oh, why don't you talk about my favorite author instead of whatever the hell it is you're doing? Fair enough. I still love you, angry listener. Thank you for giving us a few minutes of your time. But of all these types of listeners and emails and critics and well-wishers, I think my favorite is still quite simple. Someone who tells me where they were when they were listening. A little spark of connection. I know where I am in this basement hovel in crazy town, but hearing where you are, a book lover in Milwaukee or Mongolia or Iran or Hong Kong or Brazil, in a garden, in the car, walking, Two souls finding each other, finding the podcast, finding literature, finding a bit of warmth in a cold and empty universe. Now, this could happen with a podcast about gardening or deep sea diving or antique cars. People with hobbies meet up with other people with hobbies around the world. Thank you, Internet. And here with this humble little podcast, it happened with literature. Why? And me, your humble little podcaster, has kept at it for several years now. I won't lie, it's a lot of work. (laughs) It's brought me a bit of money, not too much, enough to cover my expenses now, thankfully. But not as much as, as taking on a second job would pay, and it's more work than a second job, or as much work as a second job, let's say. It's more work than it is worth it for the money. I'll put it that way. So why don't I stop? Could there be a a life trick to help me figure it out or at least come to peace with whatever it is I'm doing? Why do I have on my list of New Year's resolutions all the projects I need to do, all the things I want to do, and one I can't really explain, 104 episodes of the History of Literature podcast? I don't need to do it. I don't want to do it. Or at least I want to do other things more. And yet, of all the resolutions, it's the one I'm most likely to keep. Why could there be a life trick to get me through this? I'll give you three life tricks today. One I mentioned a couple of episodes ago, New Year's Eve. How do you get through New Year's Eve and maintain some optimism when the world everywhere is lousy and things seem to be getting worse? It's easy. Here's the life trick. If you've had a good year, You approach New Year's Eve with gratitude. Oh, this was a great year. A lot of good things happened. Maybe you had a child or a grandchild. Maybe a a graduation was in your life. Maybe falling in love. Maybe there was a wedding. Okay, so you say, this has been a great year. I'm a little sorry it ended, but I'm thankful for the blessings that I had and hope that we can sustain this good fortune in the next year. Things are looking good. If you had a bad year, you say, well... Here's a new chapter. Here's a chance to turn the page. The milestone here is that this year, this bad year is over. Next year will be better. Can't get no worse. 
life trick number two, dealing with critics. A lot of podcasters have asked me this. What do you do when the reviews start coming in and some people just don't seem to be on board with you? You can ignore the reviews, artists and creative types and speakers of all kinds. Anyone visible, anyone who's in the public eye in any way has to deal with critics. If you put yourself out there, they will come. The more listeners you have, the noisier the clamor. But think of it this way. If someone, here's the life trick. If someone is above you on the ladder of success or prestige or, or cachet, someone you truly admire, someone who's influential, someone with power, that's a critic you might fear, right? Well, if they're taking shots at you, they're punching down, which makes them a bully, doesn't it? Bullies are easy to ignore. And if they're not above you, if if they're somewhere down there in the realm of anonymity, then who cares? They're reaching up to take their shots, but you're bigger than that. You can afford to let them have their say. It's probably a bit of jealousy and a bit of misunderstanding, and you can be generous. You're bigger than that. That's life trick number two. Just keep doing what you do. Don't stop. Follow your instincts. I'll get to Life trick number three a little later. So this is a necessary episode for reasons I will explain. It's inspired by the book The Shape of a Pocket by John Berger. I'll have more about him in a moment. The book is deep and profound, and yet for me it was more provocative than explanatory. I almost could not read it. I've tried several times in this past year. I stopped in frustration more than once. Not so much Frustration in the sense of being angry or irritated, but in the sense of being overwhelmed. Eventually, the book, which is a collection of essays, eventually it settles down into very enjoyable descriptions of Berger's relationship with different artists like Michelangelo and Van Gogh. And those are easy to read and illuminating. He's a very interesting thinker. But the first few essays are challenging. They challenge us to keep up with the ideas of what Berger is saying about the visible of uh, what he's saying about art and creativity, and in particular, the visual arts, which is not always a topic for me. I appreciate it, but I can't always follow it. It's like I, I feel like a fish who's used to swimming in water, and suddenly I'm dropped into a, a pond of honey. It's sweet. It feels, it feels good to be somewhere different. It's familiar, but I'm also gasping for breath and feeling like I can't move the way I'm used to moving, the way I'd like to move. I'm not accustomed to this world, and I'm not well-equipped for it. I almost could not read the book in its first few pages. There were so many mysteries, so many ideas that sparked other ideas, answers that raised only questions. I was marking almost every line in those first few chapters, making stars everywhere in the margins, scribbling notes. My brain was overheating. I set it aside, tried it again, set it aside again. More notes, more questions, more thoughts, the fish in the vat of honey struggling to turn, frozen, barely able to move forward, desperate to draw oxygen out of the undeniably rich liquid. 
I am not well equipped to appreciate this book fully because although I love art, I want to love it, the visual arts do not love me. They loved John Berger. He was an art critic, English art critic and painter, also a writer, a novelist, pretty good one, and a short story writer and a poet. He's most famous for Ways of Seeing, which was a BBC documentary back in the 70s. And, and there was a book of the same name that's still widely read. He lived a long life from 1926 to 2017, died at age 90. He was in London at first and then spent 50 years in France. He wrote about painters with the appreciation of a painter, sort of like Giorgio Vasari, the Renaissance painter who was not quite first-rate himself, but close enough that he could explain Michelangelo and Leonardo and Giotto and Cimabue and Botticelli and the others. He could tell us what he saw in them, what made them great, and he could help generations of people appreciate their greatness. Berger sees in paintings something I don't and can't. He sees with the eyes of someone who can do what he sees. I am limited. I draw stick figures poorly. Berger draws and paints what he sees. His skill allowed him to do that but it also let him see beyond just technical skill and see what makes a painting come alive. Other realms of art have this too. Jazz musicians can do this with one another. I can watch from the outside, and if someone describes it well, I can understand it better. I don't mind being on the outside. It is what it is. I'll never paint like a Michelangelo, and I'll never paint even close enough to sort of sense what it must be like to paint like Michelangelo. I've played enough sports and been good enough at them or had enough moments that I can kind of guess what it's like to be truly great in athletics. Those moments in basketball when everything goes in, when you know you're better than the others on the court, that makes watching a great basketball player not out of the realm of my understanding. I've had enough experiences to be able to imagine what it's like to be a champion in that moment, knowing what your body can do. In acting on the stage, I've acted enough with enough little moments to think I sort of know what it's like to be great. I can imagine what it's like to inhabit a character as deeply as that. I can't do it like Meryl Streep or Laurence Olivier or Judy Dench, not as long or as well or as, as powerfully but enough to feel like I at least have a sense. But painting? No. Nope, nope. No. There, I'm at a loss. I know what it's like to admire a painting that hangs on the wall. I've stood in front of them doing that for hours in my life. But to see it from a painter's point of view, to know what it's like to, to lift your hand, to see something in your mind, how you want it to be, and then to move your hand holding a a brush or chalk or pen or pencil, and to make that thing in your mind come into existence, it's not something I can do. When I see a picture in my mind, it doesn't look like a stick figure, but when I move my hand, that's all that comes out. I have no idea how to get, how to get that, that thing in my mind onto the page. 
And in fact, I know and have accepted that I cannot do it. I've tried and failed, starting at a young age and continuing to this day. And I know there are things like that. I will not dance like a Baryshnikov. I won't play piano like Thelonious Monk. And I'm not going to paint like John Berger or any other painter. And I'm okay with that. I have to be, don't I? And so, as I read a book like The Shape of a Pocket, I'm on the outside looking in. The book helps me see and helps me appreciate. It gives me things to think about. But I'll give you an example. When he says, for example... Quote, when a painting is lifeless, it is the result of the painter not having the nerve to get close enough for a collaboration to start. He stays at a copying distance. Or, as in mannerist periods like today, he stays at an art historical distance, playing stylistic tricks which the model knows nothing about. To go in close means forgetting convention, reputation, reasoning, hierarchies, and self. It also means risking incoherence, even madness, for it can happen that one gets too close and then the collaboration breaks down and the painter dissolves into the model or the animal devours or tramples the painter into the ground. When he says, end quote, when he says that, I'm at a loss. I admire that passage. I find it fascinating, but I can only imagine what other painters feel when they're wrestling with that moment. If you've not been in love, maybe you can't feel love. You don't know what it's like. You can read about it, but it's not an emotion you felt. You have your own life with all its emotions, but an important one is absent, and maybe the other emotions fill in around it. Maybe they get stronger, more developed, the way they say that happens for a person who lacks a sense, a blind person who develops a stronger sense of smell and more acute hearing. You don't know what love is, but you hear about it, and so your other emotions are strengthened. I'd like to think that reading passages of John Berger helped me understand art better, and even if I can't apply it to painting, I can apply it to my understanding of paintings or painters or other forms of art or life itself. Listen to this passage and tell me that you aren't improved somewhat by hearing it. This is another one from John Berger, Shape of a Pocket. He says, quote, We live our daily lives in a constant exchange with the set of daily appearances surrounding us. Often they are very familiar. Sometimes they are unexpected and new, but always they confirm us in our lives. They do so even when they are threatening. The sight of a house burning, for example, or a man approaching us with a knife between his teeth still reminds us urgently of our life and its importance. What we habitually see confirms us. End quote. Or this passage. Quote, I had a dream in which I was a strange dealer a dealer in looks or appearances. I collected and distributed them. In the dream, I had just discovered a secret. I discovered it on my own, without help or advice. The secret was to get inside whatever I was looking at, a bucket of water, a cow, a city like Toledo seen from above, an oak tree, and once inside, 
to arrange its appearances for the better. Better did not mean making the thing seem more beautiful or more harmonious, nor did it mean making it more typical, so that the oak tree might represent all oak trees. It simply meant making it more itself, so that the cow or the city or the bucket of water became more evidently unique. The doing of this gave me pleasure, and I had the impression that the small changes I made from the inside gave pleasure to others. The secret of how to get inside the object so as to rearrange how it looked was as simple as opening the door of a wardrobe. Perhaps it was merely a question of being there when the door swung open on its own. Yet when I woke up, I couldn't remember how it was done, and I no longer knew how to get inside things. End quote. Or this one. Quote, what is a likeness? When a person dies, they leave behind, for those who knew them, an emptiness, a space. The space has contours, and it is different for each person mourned. This space with its contours is the person's likeness and is what the artist searches for when making a living portrait. A likeness is something left behind invisibly. End quote. There's much more in this book. I feel a connection with the words, even if I'm not the perfect audience for them. And I think Berger would be fine with this. What is the shape of a pocket? The pocket in question, he wrote, is a small pocket of resistance. A pocket is formed when two or more people come together in agreement. End quote. Reminds me of this podcasting business, what I've been saying about it, a connection of a couple of people, me and a guest, maybe, or me and an author, but also, fundamentally, most importantly, me and you. Maybe me and you and some others in your family, or your colleagues, or friends, or loved ones. We have these pockets together because so much of life does not have them. So much of life is mystery and distance and isolation, so much of art is too. The history of literature sounds like it will be full of knowledge, and I guess it kind of is. We convey a lot of facts and stories and ideas, and we try our best to make those meaningful. But when I think about the podcast and myself, I usually think about how much I don't know, which is fine too. It's even, I would say, appropriate for its subject. Not knowing the state of not knowing is an art. It has produced some of my favorite moments in literature, exploring what we don't know and can't know. I've said that literature is the closest thing that I have to religion, and here we go. Here's another overlap between the two. Religion, the religious impulse in human beings arises out of mystery and a human need to know what's unknowable. Literature, when it's any good, does the same. And sometimes literature supplies answers, which is great and wonderful and gives us much to value and explore and wrestle with and accept or reject. And sometimes literature lives in the unknown, which is even better. By that, I mean it, it accepts the unknowable 
and helps us wrestle with that fact. Not just the questions we have, but the fact that we have questions without answers. I love books like this the best of all. There's The Good Soldier by Ford Maddox Ford. Read that sometime. The narrator who doesn't know. And there is The Dead by James Joyce. Once again on Christmas Eve, I found time to read it. I carved out time in the day. The family was bustling. The wind was roaring, truly roaring as we drove through the mountains with cars pulled off to the side of the road thanking the stars that we had added some de-icer to our windshield wiper fluid reservoir. Our car registered a temperature of zero degrees Fahrenheit outside. The turnpike roads were clear, fortunately, but the visibility was poor. We made it through. We arrived at our destination. We ate Chinese food and slumbered away the afternoon in warmth and good company with a football game on TV, blankets on the seven or eight people watching the game. And I snuck away and read James Joyce's The Dead, as I do every Christmas Eve. The Dead is a story about not knowing. I won't spoil the whole thing, but I am going to talk about the ending, so I guess you can pause here if you haven't read it before and want to read the whole thing for yourself, which I recommend, of course, I'm also not sure you can really spoil the story since I've read it probably a hundred times and it still takes my breath away each and every time. And I won't talk about too much about the beginning. We did a whole three-part episode on this story, One Christmas, that's back in our archives. But that moment, the moment where Gabriel sees Greta, his wife, on the stairs and he doesn't know what she's thinking. Look at how... Joyce and Gabriel turn to painting to try to capture what it is that he's seeing. Quote, Gabriel had not gone to the door with the others. He was in a dark part of the hall, gazing up the staircase. A woman was standing near the top of the first flight, in the shadow also. He could not see her face, but he could see the terracotta and salmon-pink panels of her skirt, which the shadow made appear black and white. It was his wife. She was leaning on the banisters, listening to something. Gabriel was surprised at her stillness and strained his ear to listen also. But he could hear little save the noise of laughter and dispute on the front steps, a few chords struck on the piano, and a few notes of a man's voice singing. He stood still in the gloom of the hall, trying to catch the air that the voice was singing and gazing up at his wife. There was grace and mystery in her attitude as if she were a symbol of something. He asked himself, what is a woman standing on the stairs in the shadow, listening to distant music, a symbol of? If he were a painter, he would paint her in that attitude. Her blue felt hat would show off the bronze of her hair against the darkness, and the dark panels of her skirt would show off the light ones. Distant music, he would call the picture if he were a painter. End quote. Grace and mystery, distant music. 
You can capture it with paint. You can see it in your mind's eye. A genius like Joyce can help us see it with his words. But what we're seeing is not explained. It's the unknown. It's the man who does not know what his wife is thinking, why she's standing that way. And he knows he doesn't know. He's living with the unknown. A description of the sunset tells us the colors and the shapes playing across the sky, but it doesn't explain the mystery of who we are and why this blazing star makes us possible and why looking at the sunset makes us feel the way it does. Scientists tell us the how, but we don't know the why. Later, in the story, Greta reveals to Gabriel some more about that grace and mystery and the source of it. She tells him about Michael Fury, the young man who was in love with her back in Galway, who died for her. And the story ends with Gabriel thinking about the people who have been here and who aren't here now, and the people who are here, but who we cannot truly know. As the snow falls on Ireland, it's as moving as anything you'll find in literature. I'll read the passage so we can marvel at it together. Gabriel and his wife have attended a party with his aunts, a Christmas party. His aunts are aging. And Gabriel gave a speech. Kind and decent Gabriel gave a speech. He's now with his wife in a rented room. He thinks... Maybe it's time for intimacy. He's felt that throughout the evening, that maybe tonight it would end in intimacy, husband and wife. But something has been distracting her all night, and he's feeling a kind of irritation as well as his ardor, that they're not closer. Something is blocking that. This is from the dead. A ghostly light from the street lamp lay in a long shaft from one window to the door. Gabriel threw his overcoat and hat on a couch and crossed the room towards the window. He looked down into the street in order that his emotion might calm a little. Then he turned and leaned against a chest of drawers with his back to the light. She had taken off her hat and cloak and was standing before a large swinging mirror, unhooking her waist. Gabriel paused for a few moments, watching her, and then said, Greta. She turned away from the mirror slowly and walked along the shaft of light towards him. Her face looked so serious and weary that the words would not pass Gabriel's lips. No, it was not the moment yet. You looked tired, he said. I am a little, she answered. You don't feel ill or weak? No, tired, that's all. She went on to the window and stood there, looking out. Gabriel waited again, and then, fearing that diffidence was about to conquer him, he said abruptly, By the way, Greta, what is it? You know that poor fellow Malins? He said quickly. Yes. What about him? Well, poor fellow, he's a decent sort of chap, after all, continued Gabriel in a false voice. He gave me back that sovereign I lent him, and I didn't expect it, really. It's a pity he wouldn't keep away from that brown, because he's not a bad fellow, really. He was trembling now with annoyance. Why did she seem so abstracted? He did not know how he could begin. Was she annoyed, too, about something? If she would only turn to him, 
or come to him of her own accord, to take her as she was would be brutal. No, he must see some ardor in her eyes first. He longed to be master of her strange mood. When did you lend him the pound? She asked after a pause. Gabriel strove to restrain himself from breaking out into brutal language about the sottish melons in his pound. He longed to cry to her from his soul, to crush her body against his, to overmaster her. But he said, Oh, at Christmas, when he opened that little Christmas card shop in Henry Street, he was in such a fever of rage and desire that he did not hear her come from the window. She stood before him for an instant, looking at him strangely. Then, suddenly raising herself on tiptoe and resting her hands lightly on his shoulders, she kissed him. You are a very generous person, Gabriel, she said. Gabriel, trembling with delight at her sudden kiss and at the quaintness of her phrase, put his hands on her hair and began smoothing it back, scarcely touching it with his fingers. The washing had made it fine and brilliant. His heart was brimming over with happiness. Just when he was wishing for it, she had come to him of her own accord. Perhaps her thoughts had been running with his. Perhaps she had felt the impetuous desire that was in him. And then the yielding mood had come upon her. Now that she had fallen to him so easily, he wondered why he had been so diffident. He stood, holding her head between his hands, then slipping one arm swiftly about her body and drawing her towards him, he said softly, Greta, dear, what are you thinking about? She did not answer, nor yield wholly to his arm. He said again, softly, Tell me what it is, Greta. I think I know what is the matter. Do I know? She did not answer at once. Then she said in an outburst of tears, Oh! I am thinking about that song, The Lass of Agram. She broke loose from him and ran to the bed, and, throwing her arms across the bed rail, hid her face. Gabriel stood stock still for a moment in astonishment and then followed her. As he passed in the way of the shovel glass, he caught sight of himself in full length, his broad, well-filled shirt front, the face whose expression always puzzled him when he saw it in a mirror, and his glimmering, gilt-rimmed eyeglasses. He halted a few paces from her and said, What about the song? Why does that make you cry? She raised her head from her arms and dried her eyes with the back of her hand like a child. A kinder note than he had intended went into his voice. Why, Greta? he asked. I am thinking about a person long ago who used to sing that song. And who was the person long ago? asked Gabriel, smiling. It was a person I used to know in Galway when I was living with my grandmother, she said. The smile passed away from Gabriel's face. A dull anger began to gather again at the back of his mind, and the dull fires of his lust began to glow angrily in his veins. Someone you were in love with? he asked ironically. It was a young boy I used to know, she answered, named Michael Fury. He used to sing that song, The Lass of Agram, 
he was very delicate. Gabriel was silent. He did not wish her to think that he was interested in this delicate boy. I can see him so plainly, she said after a moment, such eyes as he had, big, dark eyes, and such an expression in them, an expression. Oh, then you were in love with him, said Gabriel. I used to go out walking with him, she said, when I was in Galway. A thought flew across Gabriel's mind. Perhaps that was why you wanted to go to Galway with that Ivers girl, he said coldly. She looked at him and asked in surprise, What for? Her eyes made Gabriel feel awkward. He shrugged his shoulders and said, How do I know? To see him, perhaps. She looked away from him along the shaft of light towards the window in silence. He is dead, she said at length. He died when he was only seventeen. Isn't it a terrible thing to die so young as that? What was he? asked Gabriel, still ironically. He was in the gasworks, she said. Gabriel felt humiliated by the failure of his irony and by the evocation of this figure from the dead, a boy in the gasworks. While he had been full of memories of their secret life together, full of tenderness and joy and desire, she had been comparing him in her mind with another. A shameful consciousness of his own person assailed him. He saw himself as a ludicrous figure, acting as a penny boy for his aunts, a nervous, well-meaning sentimentalist, orating to vulgarians and idealizing his own clownish lusts the pitiable, fatuous fellow he had caught a glimpse of in the mirror. Instinctively, he turned his back more to the light, lest she might see the shame that burned upon his forehead. He tried to keep up his tone of cold interrogation, but his voice when he spoke was humble and indifferent. I suppose you were in love with this Michael Fury, Greta, he said. I was great with him at that time, she said. Her voice was veiled and sad. Gabriel, feeling now how vain it would be to try to lead her whither he had purposed, caressed one of her hands and said, also sadly, And what did he die of so young, Greta? Consumption, was it? I think he died for me, she answered. A vague... Terror seized Gabriel at this answer, as if, at that hour when he had hoped to triumph, some impalpable and vindictive being was coming against him, gathering forces against him in its vague world. But he shook himself free of it with an effort of reason, and continued to caress her hand. He did not question her again, for he felt that she would tell him of herself. Her hand was warm and moist. It did not respond to his touch but he continued to caress it just as he had caressed her first letter to him that spring morning. It was in the winter, she said, about the beginning of the winter when I was going to leave my grandmother's and come up here to the convent. 
and he was ill at the time in his lodgings in Galway, and wouldn't be let out, and his people in Octorard were written to. He was in decline, they said, or something like that. I never knew rightly. She paused for a moment and sighed. Poor fellow, she said. He was very fond of me, and he was such a gentle boy. We used to go out together, walking, you know, Gabriel, like the way they do in the country. He was going to study singing only for his health. He had a very good voice, poor Michael Fury. Well, and then? asked Gabriel. And then, when it came to the time for me to leave Galway and come up to the convent, he was much worse, and I wouldn't be let see him, so I wrote him a letter saying I was going up to Dublin and would be back in the summer, and hoping he would be better then. She paused for a moment to get her voice under control, and then went on. Then the night before I left, I was in my grandmother's house in Nun's Island, packing up, and I heard gravel thrown up against the window. The window was so wet I couldn't see, so I ran downstairs as I was and slipped out the back into the garden, and there was the poor fellow at the end of the garden, shivering. And did you not tell him to go back? asked Gabriel. I implored of him to go home at once and told him he would get his death in the rain, but he said he did not want to live. I can see his eyes as well as well. He was standing at the end of the wall where there was a tree. And did he go home? asked Gabriel. Yes, he went home, and when I was only a week in the convent, he died, and he was buried at Octorard where his parents came from. Oh, the day I heard that, that he was dead. She stopped, choking with sobs and, overcome by emotion, flung herself face downward on the bed, sobbing in the quilt. Gabriel held her hand for a moment longer, irresolutely, and then, shy of intruding on her grief, let it fall gently and walked quietly to the window. She was fast asleep. Gabriel, leaning on his elbow, looked for a few moments unresentfully on her tangled hair, and half-open mouth, listening to her deep-drawn breath. So she had had that romance in her life. A man had died for her sake. It hardly pained him now to think how poor a part he, her husband, had played in her life. He watched her while she slept, as though he and she had never lived together as man and wife. His curious eyes rested long upon her face and on her hair, and as he thought of what she must have been then, in that time of her first girlish beauty, a strange, friendly pity for her entered his soul. He did not like to say even to himself that her face was no longer beautiful, but he knew that it was no longer the face for which Michael Fury had braved death. Perhaps she had not told him all the story. His eyes moved to the chair over which she had thrown some of her clothes. A petticoat string dangled to the floor. One boot stood upright, its limp upper fallen down. The fellow of it lay upon its side. He wondered at his riot of emotions of an hour before. From what had it proceeded? From his aunt's supper? From his own foolish speech? From the wine and dancing? The merrymaking when saying goodnight in the hall? The pleasure of the walk along the river in the snow? Poor Aunt Julia! 
She too would soon be a shade with the shade of Patrick Morgan and his horse. He had caught that haggard look upon her face for a moment when she was singing Arrayed for the Bridal. Soon, perhaps, he would be sitting in that same drawing room, dressed in black, his silk hat on his knees. The blinds would be drawn down, and Aunt Kate would be sitting beside him, crying and blowing her nose and telling him how Julia had died. He would cast about in his mind for some words that might console her, and would find only lame and useless ones. Yes, yes, that would happen very soon. The air of the room chilled his shoulders. He stretched himself cautiously along under the sheets and lay down beside his wife. One by one they were all becoming shades. Better pass boldly into that other world in the full glory of some passion than fade and wither dismally with age. He thought of how she who lay beside him had locked in her heart for so many years that image of her lover's eyes when he told her that he did not wish to live. Generous tears filled Gabriel's eyes. He had never felt like that himself towards any woman, but he knew that such a feeling must be love. The tears gathered more thickly in his eyes, and in the partial darkness he imagined he saw the form of a young man standing under a dripping tree. Other forms were near. His soul had approached that region where dwell the vast hosts of the dead. He was conscious of, but could not apprehend, their wayward and flickering existence. His own identity was fading out into a gray, impalpable world, the solid world itself which these dead had one time reared and lived in, was dissolving and dwindling. A few light taps upon the pane made him turn to the window. It had begun to snow again. He watched sleepily the flakes, silver and dark, falling obliquely against the lamplight. The time had come for him to set out on his journey westward. Yes, the newspapers were right. Snow was general all over Ireland. It was falling on every part of the dark central plain, on the treeless hills, falling softly on the bog of Allen, and farther westward, softly falling into the dark, mutinous Shannon waves. It was falling, too, upon every part of the lonely churchyard on the hill where Michael Fury lay buried. It lay thickly drifted on the crooked crosses and headstones, on the spears of the little gate, on the barren thorns. His soul swooned slowly, as he heard the snow falling faintly through the universe and faintly falling, like the descent of their last end, upon all the living and the dead. End quote. It's the Dead by James Joyce. Life is hard, people, full of disappointment and loss and unfathomable pain. There's this feeling that sometimes it's our turn to lose those closest to us, and nobody knows what to say. And sometimes we're like Gabriel, trying to console Aunt Kate, who has lost Aunt Julia, and sitting there with his black suit and his silk hat and casting about in his mind for the right words, and fearing that he will find only lame and useless ones. I delivered the address at a funeral this year, 
It was indescribably difficult and yet healing too. It felt like something was washing over me as I spoke, a feeling that was coming to me from the audience of 70 or 80 people, a mixture of grief and gratitude. We talk into the void, but the void isn't empty. George Harrison used to have a thing he'd do when someone would die. He'd call up the survivors, the friends who were in shock, and he'd say, aren't you glad it wasn't you? We feel that way. We can't help it, even when the pain is sharpest. Aren't you glad you're still alive? Aren't you glad you're alive? Sometimes it's hard to see. Sometimes it's hard to feel that feeling of being glad to be alive. The loss is so great, and it doesn't always fade. Or maybe I should say it fades, but it doesn't disappear. It can be brought back as long as there are people with memories. It's one thing to be Gabriel looking out the window, thinking about life. It's another thing to be in the middle of Greta's pain, remembering the shock and horror of Michael Fury, who died for her at such a young age. Gabriel can't truly know her, but imagine the world from Greta's perspective, married to a man who won't truly know that part of her. I'm nostalgic for a lot of things that only I can know, only I truly feel. Maybe a close childhood friend was there too. Maybe my sister has some overlap with the experience. Maybe people I talk to can share something similar or appreciate my memory because it reminds themselves of something that they've experienced or because their powers of empathy are well-developed. And maybe that's why I appreciate literature, because it develops that power of empathy when you read about the ups and downs and fortunes and misfortunes of people and their stories. John Berger talks about the connection we feel when we see a painting from another century and we think, look at that arm, look at that chin. Those are familiar. People are the same. We recognize something similar in their eyes, a light that we know and appreciate today. The clothes and external trappings might change, but the humans and the life are still recognizable. And when you see a cave drawing from tens of thousands of years ago, you think, my God, they were looking at this, this animal, this event, this object, this thing, and they had the impulse to record it here. We are humans connecting with other humans. We're all in this together, however briefly. I can't even draw as well as the crudest cave painting, and yet I can feel it when I see it, the excitement of a herd of prey traveling past, the impulse to record it. The work viewed by sunlight streaming in through the cave entrance or by the light of a fire, I know that feeling. I feel it when I sit down to write or when I start talking to you here in my own little cave of a studio. And literature has that too. The jobs change, the modes of transportation, but you can read Dickens and feel the ups and downs of the characters, the hopes that rise and are dashed and that rise again, the search for love, the shadows that crawl across the brightest of days, and the squeezing of hope from the darkest of nights. I can read an ancient poet like Sappho and feel love and lust that I recognize. I can read an ancient poet like Catullus and feel like he's tapped into the crabby resentment that I myself have felt too, and the cleansing power of art that transforms that bitterness and pessimism into something that makes a 21st century human smile and nod. Literature goes deep. 
There's a magic and power to that. Music does it too in a different way, and so does painting. And I'm fascinated by the way this connects us as humans. It's not just one way. There's not just one method. I pull a book off the shelf and can feel that connection with the author. And I know that my experience is multiplied by hundreds or thousands or millions of readers, all of us connecting with that spirit who put those words on that page. It's beautiful. And sometimes it's a teacher reading a book to a classroom, or a mother or father reading to a child, or a grandparent, or a babysitter, or an older sibling reading to a younger sibling. And those are all moments of magic. And there's a privilege to being inside that moment if you've written something that other people can read together and share with one another, or if you've made a film that an audience sees in a crowded theater laughing together experiencing together, you're there too. It's a special kind of privilege to be in that moment. And I've felt that as a lowly podcaster when people tell me they listened into the, in the car with their fiancé or when a family plays the podcast in the kitchen while they do the dishes together. I am overwhelmed by this feeling of being there at that moment. It's hard to describe but I know it and I feel it. And maybe that's my third life trick for you, that that is something I can know. My third trick, something I can know. I can't know what it's like to paint, to be that person painting that picture or that person drawing that cave painting on the wall of the cave, but I can know other things instead. I can feel blessed that I've been given that chance to feel that feeling I always wanted to be the father of a daughter. Always imagined that I would have a little girl. Well, we flipped the coin twice. It didn't go that way. So I don't really know what it's like to be the father of a daughter. I have missed out on that. But being the father of two boys is pretty good. It's pretty amazing. I see things in them as brothers, and I wouldn't trade it for the world. There's a beauty to it and a privilege to what I've been exposed to to what I've experienced, to what I've been able to enjoy, to the feelings and sensations that have been part of my life. I missed out on meeting one of my grandfathers who died young. He sounds amazing, and I'm sure I would have gained a lot from the chance to know him. But there are a lot of things I can count as a joy, like a trip to Tibet, which was an extreme piece of good fortune. None of us gets everything. We all get our share. Now, when I think about being inside a magic moment, like the communion of a book with a reader, and me somewhere in there too, I think about pairs of artists. This is the other kind of couple that fascinates me. There are many different types. There's the artist who has a muse, a source of inspiration. That's fascinating. There's the artist who's just good enough to appreciate the genius artist nearby, like Salieri or Vasari. There are the artists who are friends or correspondents or rivals. And then there are collaborations. There are the Garfunkels who know how to sing harmonies with the Simons. The Buckinghams who can take the poetry of a Stevie Nicks and turn it into musical gold. There's Lennon and McCartney, nose to nose in the bathroom, strumming their guitars, melding their teenage voices together, completing one another inspiring one another, completing one another again, forever and always a great gift to the world. There's Joseph Conrad and Ford Maddox Ford, who wrote a novel together, but who also just 
appreciated each other. Ford told the story of sitting with Conrad, the two of them gazing into one another's eyes for hours. Imagine being part of that deep relationship with another artist, with another person. All these are people I've admired from afar, relationships that have fascinated me, these and a thousand others. And then there are two who are very close to my heart, Charlie and Andy. Charlie reached out to me a few years ago, I guess it was. She wanted to let me know that she appreciated the podcast. She was a painter, a German painter, as was the love of her life, Andy. Andy had introduced her to the podcast, and the two of them listened on car rides and listened in their art studio, where together they worked on their paintings. I was blown away. I could not envision it, truly could not. I was humbled and grateful and filled with a kind of inexpressible joy that she had told me about it. I never spoke to Andy, but I had Charlie on the show. She did a series of paintings drawn from paintings that were described in literature. It's some of the best art I've ever seen. It speaks to me. Her portrait of Anna Karenina, which recreates the portrait or imagines the portrait that was made of Anna Karenina in the novel, is still one that haunts me. Here was someone who knew and loved literature and who brought to it a special skill and talent that was beyond me, was a skill and talent I could only admire from afar. And when we spoke, I was fascinated by her, by her artistic process, which I could kind of understand if my mind stretched to make it there. And she told me about Andy and the way the two of them could collaborate with one another, which sounded like artists in the sense of craftsmen, but also sounded much deeper than that to me. It sounded like two souls who had found one another, maybe completed one another. There was a magic and a beauty and a grace to it. Charlie emailed to tell me they got married, and I felt like you do when two notes come together and blend perfectly. There are unseen vi vibrations that match perfectly, ringing together in the cosmos, creating a harmony. It seems so simple, but is so rare and special. And one plus one is greater than two. It's as, it's as powerful as infinity. An artist who can find another artist not just to share coffee with in the morning and to sleep next to at night, as important as those things are for all of us, but an artist who seeks out that moment where the visible emerges, where creation fills the void, where we bring forth something that did not exist but does now and is as close as we come to perfection in this imperfect world. To make not just a single beautiful melody in this chaos and clamor, but a melody that has a harmony too. It feels like a connection as magical as author to reader and parent to child and book to discerning mind. It feels like a great privilege, like sunlight on the surface of water, natural and yet miraculous. They had it. Charlie and Andy, I felt it from afar and I admired it and treasured it and I counted it among the great pieces of good fortune I've been given from the podcast and from life that I had a connection to this, to this magic and this beauty. And then this year, a terribly sad email from Charlie. A tragedy had struck 
Andy passed away, shockingly, far too soon, far too young, leaving a hole in the world that's far too large. I felt like the world had gotten thinner. The music of the world had gotten thinner. What I used to think of as being a kind of perfection, a perfected circle, that magical harmony had been disrupted. My heart broke. I offered what I could from afar, from my feeble position, and Charlie and I agreed that maybe an episode dedicated to Andy would be nice. And I asked if there was a book that came to mind, and Charlie suggested The Shape of a Pocket by John Berger, which I have now been reading over and over for months, hoping trying to find meaning there. I truly do not know what to say. It's unknowable, it's unfathomable, and yet I try because I want to and because I need to. My heart breaks for Charlie, for Andy and Charlie both, two people I've never met, but whose relationship with each other was important to me. It got me through some difficult times as I wrestled with who I am and just what I'm doing with this thing, this podcast. Why talk about this stuff? What is the podcast and what is it for? And I think if Charlie and Andy are listening to it in their studio, in their car, on the way to a showing, enough so that they reach out to me and tell me they appreciate it and that they find it invigorating, stimulating, if the podcast can be part of that moment where those two are waiting for miracles to emerge, waiting to see visions of what's left behind, imagining their way into the objects we can rearrange from the inside, bringing forth the faces on the canvas that breathe with inner life and the objects that do the same. If the podcast is part of the visions of this world that come from truly great artists and are laid down, painted, smeared, etched with authority, if two people who live in that sphere with one another don't mind having me on in the background while they're thinking and anticipating and collaborating and creating, well, then why not keep going? Why do the podcast? Well, why not? Beckett said that. I can't go on. I'll go on. Maybe that's my fourth life trick, except it's not so much a trick as a truth. Why go on? Why not? And then the corollary. If we are going on, if we are living here at the end of 2022, as it turns into 2023, why not live for joy and connection and creation, all the tiny miracles that appear and that we can make happen, being ready for the big miracles like love and unlikely success and the lottery when our number comes up and generating a million tiny miracles each day, like smiling at a stranger at the grocery store and helping a person who needs it and feeling good about a joke or a memory or a plan, something new coming around the corner. Our hearts break into a million pieces. Life pounds the hope out of us. Sometimes we're flattened. We're drained of all color. We can't go on, but we go on. Greta lost Michael Fury, and it never left her. He never left her. But Greta found Gabriel, which is not bad. We can't go on. We'll go on. Why? Why not? How? That's going to be up to us, as it was last year, as it is this year, as it will be for as many years as we're fortunate enough to live. There's no answer to the question why. Not really. There's only why not. But the answer to how 
is as big as the universe with as many possibilities as the books on the shelf or the snowflakes falling through the air all across a country or the thoughts of a planet looking for reasons to hope or the big vast sky full of all of its stars. Why we live is scary but simple. How we live is where mystery turns to grace. Why has only why not? How has all of us? Okay, that will do it for this episode of the History of Literature. We will be back with more next year. 104 episodes in the works to a week. It's on the list, people. I love you all, including you, Charlie. I love you very much. I'm Jack Wilson. Thank you for listening, and we'll see you next time.